0: The Ontario government says it will not extend an inquiry into COVID-19's deadly spread in long-term care homes in Ontario after uh, those leading the probe appealed for more time. And this came from the Minister of Long-Term Care, Marilee Folderton. I might say Dr. Marilee Folderton, to give her honorific. Uh, she says the inquiry's final report and recommendations are still expected by April 30th, uh, we're joined on the line by Dr. Nahid Dosani. Uh, he is a palliative care physician, health justice advocate at the faculty with the faculties of both University of Toronto and McMaster University in Hamilton. Good afternoon, Dr. Dosani. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks so much for coming on. You've heard what uh, how I opened, uh, and it's not news that's new to you. Uh, what do you think about the fact that uh, they say they need more time to get the uh, material, and it would take till December, and the long-term care minister is saying, no, you're going to deliver on April 30th?
1: Well, this is enraging, bordering on scandal, quite frankly, Um, you know, at the outset, someone looking at the situation might say, well, the government is just trying to get a report out because we're in the midst of a crisis. But unfortunately, without this information and not providing appropriate documentation, we will not get the solutions that we need to address this crisis. And yes, we are in a humanitarian crisis in our long-term care facilities. One third of long-term care facilities are in outbreak, 745 homes. That's a Record number, And our seven day average has doubled in the last week around deaths and tripled since the start of the pandemic. People deserve to know what's going on and, and this information is being blocked.
0: I wouldn't argue with any of that. Um, I, I think uh, it's, it's a tragedy heaped upon a tragedy heaped upon another tragedy because we were already through wave one and we had learned what we thought we needed to know about congregate settings and uh, now we look at those numbers that you just cited and it doesn't seem we've learned very much at all. The only defense that I can think of if I were having to mount one for the government is I just started the show, and I know you wouldn't have been with us then, talking about the fact that Quebec is now uh, looking at the potential for an abs- Absolute lockdown starting in a few days, which would include things like curfew. I mean, very, very serious. Shutting down manufacturing, shutting down construction. That doesn't have to do with long term care homes. It has to do with the severity of the illness. And we're experiencing the same thing. Now, I ask you this question in light of that. If we have to go to measures like that, and nobody's saying we are, but perhaps we do, uh, and if we are looking at a report that says, here's what's going on in long term care and what you have to do with long term care, but we don't get it till April 30. Forget about whether we extend it to December 31st. That doesn't change things on the ground right now.
1: Yeah you know and that's a very fair argument and I understand where people are coming at with that but you just have to dig a little bit deeper into the story to realize that the commission has actually released two interim reports already. One on October 23rd and one on December 9th and they've been basically ignored. They detail information around staffing, caregiver access, infection control and leadership accountability. What's the point of interim commission reports if we're going to ignore the results? I do not believe that this is in good faith. Um, If If it was, why aren't we moving forward with the solutions that have been provided? The example that everyone knows about is tender care, where we have seen deaths, over 60 deaths now at that site, um, at that long-term care facility, a for-profit home, and how infection control reports were available in December, and they were basically ignored. It only really became became aware in the public when a physician um, uh, put a Twitter thread out uh, and an outcry uh, poured out after that. We need more accountability.
0: Look, they're reporting 64 dead in tender care right now, which is horrific. And we've seen this uh, this movie before, back in the spring. And and quite frankly, if you take a look across, uh, I could say into Quebec, but you could we could also say all of Canada or into the states, which is on fire, or around the world where you've got outbreaks everywhere. Long term care settings seem to be the first ones that are hit. And here in Ontario, I can't speak for the rest of the world. We have, and you mentioned it, staffing issues that have to do with using part-timers who don't have the appropriate sick days, working people really to the bone, not giving uh, the residents sufficient hours, partly because we don't have sufficient employee complements and partly because we don't have dedicated employees. These things, uh, to some extent, if not a full extent, were in the interim reports. Did, Did we have an opportunity, for example, to take the early December report, I think it was December 9th, and actually address that issue between then and now? But at the same time, while that may be true, when an infection control report
1: comes out for a particular site and there's no response or action for weeks and, and, and until there's an outbreak and a physician has to go to social media to basically leak this information, what does that say about our system? There's no doubt that our system for seniors, particularly in long-term care, is, is, it needs work. We were in a crisis before COVID-19 and now we're just on a crisis on a crisis. But it's time to start talking about the underpinnings of why that's the case. And a lot of it has to do with for-profit long-term care. Meanwhile, we have for-profit long-term care companies paying out $170 million to shareholders. And for what performance? We have seen death rates that are four to five times higher in for-profit long-term care homes as compared to not-for-profits. And and, and all on the backs of, of, of workers, racialized women mostly, who are kept poor um, uh, as the the staff that work in these facilities um, and extracting profits for shareholders. We need
0: transparency and we need accountability. Dr. Dasani, you're you're making a great argument, and I'm not the guy who's arguing with you. As a matter of fact, I think the sooner we we clean this up, the better off we are. I can tell you something, though, having had a bit of experience uh, in, in the halls of government myself, this is not new. Okay, what's new is COVID-19, but in Ontario, long-term care has always been talked about, never addressed. It's, it's, I can't say it's 10 years or 20 years. I can say that it's really never. And now they talk about it a good fight, but uh, nobody's really put anything into action. What has to happen right now? Well, you know, first off, I think we need
1: to hold on to hope. And I know that may seem a little bit esoteric at times like this. But if there isn't hope, what's the point of all this? And the silver lining is probably that the pandemic has put exposure onto uh, long term care in a way that has never I've never seen the media cover it like this. Um, and I'm and I'm grateful for this. And so are patients and caregivers, we need to address uh, private for-profit long-term care facilities is one of the worst examples of private pub- public partnerships in our, in our, in our, in our uh, society. Um, uh, we have to address uh, poor design standards. We have to address improved staffing. We need to keep Um, our health workers healthy and happy and safe by keeping, um, by providing decent wages for uh, paid sick leave. And essentially we need to create the pathways for accountability so that actually, you know, licenses are removed for bad actors, for uh, long-term care facilities that do not abide by guidelines around staffing, design standards, and providing enough resources. You're right, this was all present before the pandemic. This has been magnified by the pandemic and action is needed now.
0: Dr. Nahid Dosani is our guest and he's a palliative care physician and on the faculties of both U of T and McMaster, but as you can tell by listening to him, he's a health justice advocate. I've got to ask you this question, Dr. Dosani. Uh, we've had people on here over the course of the past week or two who have said, look, uh, this this is uh, so bad that what we need to do is rethink whether we will even allow such a thing as uh, private long-term care ownership. Uh, we should be putting it entirely in the hands of uh, of public administration do you agree with that
1: I, I do, and and I think we have we have tried this this way, this private pub, public partnership, and we have seen the outcomes. You you simply cannot have um, uh, enterprises like for-profit long-term care facilities um, uh, uh, operating under the guise of being there for patients and caregivers when really what they're beholden to is the bottom line, profits and shareholders. And at the end of the day, that is what drives boards, that is what drives CEOs, and that is what drives decision making. It is about t- that we adopt our long-term care facilities and include it as part of our public Medicare system, the way hospitals are, the way physician care is, and and make it part of the universal health care system that we as Canadians are so proud of. With the immense grief and suffering continuing for people living in long-term care today, this has to be a priority. It's a matter of life and death.
0: You're an articulate spokesman for what you believe in, and I appreciate very much you uh, presenting to us today. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Have a great day.
0: All right, you too. That's Dr. Nahid Dossani, palliative care physician, health. Justice Advocate, Faculty of uh, U of T and McMaster. You were listening yesterday, you know about this because we carried live the comments of Mayor Tory and Chief Medical Officer of Health, Eileen Davila. They want to amp up the uh, monitoring of what's going on in the business sector because there's a fair amount of spread in some aspects of that. And so the City of Toronto is publicly going to share more information about COVID-19 outbreaks in workplaces. What they're looking to do is encourage employers to take greater precautions during the pandemic, and this measure was announced yesterday, as I mentioned, uh, along with some stricter guidelines for employers reporting cases amongst their staff. Mayor Tory said, we know the fight is far from over, and spreading is happening in workplaces. Well, if it has to do with workplaces in Ontario or anywhere else in Canada, you'll always find the Canadian Federation for Independent Business. Ryan Malo is Director of Provincial Affairs for Ontario, and he joins us now. Hi, Ryan. Well, thanks for coming on board. You listened yesterday, and we listened, and now we've all kind of read and digested and reread what's going on in the workplaces. Uh, it affects your members. What do you have to say about it?
2: Yeah, so I think the, the thing that stands out for us, and the, the one that we'll be watching very closely, is going to be the naming and shaming of businesses uh, that have outbreaks, and specifically what is the impact on that going to be as public perception? Obviously, right now, a lot of businesses in the city are under lockdown, so a lot of things are closed, but as they open up to these new rules, Uh, and are named, are the public going to be scared off of these businesses because they have a couple of COVID cases without the context of where those COVID uh, cases were contracted?
0: Well, you know what? I'm a member of the public, and my wife is a member of the public, and I'm going to give you a tiny little idea of what happens in a household because this happened in the last 24 hours. Um, Loblaws has identified, I think it's 56 Active COVID cases that have been reported in various of their stores, not just the Loblaws stores. They've got some no-frills stores. They've got some shoppers, that kind of thing. So uh, my wife was able to look up and find out whether the Loblaws we have to go, like today or tomorrow, and stock up. And that particular store is one of the ones identified. She said, mm-hmm, "Maybe we go to Metro." That's what happens when people are informed and that's why the city of Toronto wants to keep people informed. I'm not saying it's a yes or a no, and I'm a businessman first and foremost, but I'm, I'm before that a person who wants to be safe and wants others to be safe. So when you're confronted with that, how do you really argue against it?
2: Well, it's it's not so much arguing against it as looking at what the repercussions of that decision are going to be. I got to say my wife and I are the same way. and did the exact same thing. Uh, To double check, fortunately, our store was a no, but um, had it had positive cases, it would have been the same thing. Let's look somewhere else. For the small businesses that have been shut down for so much of this pandemic, should they uh, become subject to that sort of decision-making, it's going to create a big problem on the consumer confidence side. And unfortunately, what it will wind up doing is pushing consumers back to Amazon. Because it's a lot tougher to say which warehouse, even though some of those may have had breakouts as well, um, but which warehouse your items are coming from, and and if you don't have to leave the house to get it, um, that is, you know, from a consumer standpoint, the safest option. Unfortunately, it is not a small business friendly option.
0: You know what, talking to you, I sometimes wonder about, we talk to uh, your organization, whether we're talking to you or we're talking to Dan, uh, on, on business issues, when there is no pandemic. But there's a pandemic. I mean, that's the thing we have to deal with. So let me uh, throw some things at you here. These are five little uh, short points that uh, Toronto businesses have to follow. Uh, businesses immediately notify Toronto Public Health when they become aware of two or more employees with COVID 19 uh, and designate a contact at work to coordinate with Toronto Public Health. Employers minimize uh, instances where more than one individual is traveling in a vehicle associated with that business. Businesses implement rigorous and free- Frequent cleaning in high touch areas. Businesses ensure regular assignments of heating, ventilation, assessments of heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems. And businesses ensure that physical distancing of employees by at least two meters uh, exists where reasonably possible. So I'm looking at that and I'm thinking to myself, what you, know, what you just pointed out. What about the little guys who are closed right now when they open up? Most of them don't deal with this stuff. This is about warehouses. This is about the Amazon guys out near the airport. This is about the meatpacking plants. And it, it seems to make a fair amount of sense to me. In fact, I would, I would believe, unless somebody tells me otherwise, that most of those organizations are doing that anyway.
2: Absolutely, and, and that was that was our first reaction when uh, Dr. Deville and Mayor Tory announced the new the new precautions. Was really a lot of this stuff has been done as a health and safety practice in most small businesses across the city. Um, our our only small concern that ro- arose from that one is they also mentioned the need now for plexiglass where uh, social distancing is impossible. It's understandable. It does come with a cost, though, and we do note that anything that comes with an additional cost, be it more hand sanitizer, more cleaning products, plexiglass, mass on-site, whatever it is, um, small businesses really can't afford to take on a lot of new costs right now, especially those that are closed and are going to be starting back up, hopefully at the end of the month. So what we're looking for there is not, not for them to be able to... to ignore the rule. But for a level of government, we know the city's under a lot of cost pressure right now, so perhaps the province, but a level of government to step up and help with funding that to ensure that they can open responsibly and safely and in compliance with the rules.
0: All right. Ryan Malo is talking to us uh, right now. He's director of provincial affairs for Ontario, the Conveter- uh, Canadian Federation of Independent Business. You know, we're all very optimistic that things are going to open up uh, at the end of the month as they're supposed to. But, uh, you know, without trying to be a naysayer, here we are with 3,200 cases identified today, which seems to be in the zone of the past week or so. We have not yet had cases come online that, uh, may, I say may, but, uh, some people think will, uh, be counted as a result of what people may have been uh, advised against but we're doing anyway around Christmas and New Year's because it takes about two weeks for things to be identified and then three weeks for hospitalization to occur. We're doing vaccines but we're not doing anywhere near the kinds of uh, numbers on vaccinations at this point that are going to matter at all for a period of many months. So you know given that we were going in that direction we really haven't got any guarantees that at the end of the month we're going to get to open up and i i think that uh, if not decimated already we're certainly heading for certain death for an awful lot of your members
2: yeah especially in the gta and in the city of toronto in particular as well as peel i mean by the end of by the end of this lockdown if it were to end on the 23rd and i agree that there's no guarantee that that happens if you were an independent bookstore in toronto since march of 2020 when the first lockdown came in you have been closed for about 150 of just over 300 pandemic days to in-store customers. Uh, not a lot of businesses are going to be able to survive that. It was tough last spring. It was absolutely devastating uh, over the, the holiday season to lose the entirety of that, to see customers be able to go and buy the same book or pair of shoes or, or jewelry at a Costco and a Walmart, but not at their independent shop. Um, so it, it is it is something that's concerning. And every every day that the lockdown continues and there are very valid health and safety reasons for it. But every day that continues, it continues to hurt small business owners, too. And that's where we need governments to step up, not just with appropriate funding to make sure that they're, they're there to reopen, but also to ensure that these decisions are made uh, entirely based on on data and that if we know that, say, one sector is responsible or is higher risk, but there's another sector that isn't that we are looking at reopening that sector in a responsible way, capacity limitations and all that, but that we are looking at reopening them earlier so that they can get back to business sooner.
0: Pretty rough uh, state of affairs we're facing right now. Look, it's, it's January the 5th. Uh, it is a known fact that this virus uh, does not thrive in the summertime I shouldn't even say summertime, I should say warm weather, but it thrives quite well uh, if if you use well in the context of a virus uh, in the middle of uh, cold season, which is where we are now and where we're going to be for another three months. So I I extend to you and CFIB and all of your members, and I once upon a time was one, so I know wherever I speak, I I extend uh, best wishes and my hope that uh, we can keep this thing under control, uh, under provincial health and across the country, and that uh, we can get vaccinations rolled out as fast as possible, because I think everybody wants to see all of your members back healthy and uh, ready to serve.
2: Absolutely. Thank you
0: so much. Ryan Malo, thank you so much uh, as well. And, uh, Ryan is Director of Provincial Affairs for Ontario, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and joined us to talk about the plight of that particular sector. And uh, quite a plight it is, too. Now, I want to uh, get into a bit of fact and fiction on this whole issue of uh, not just COVID, but the vaccines and whether they work in one dose instead of two doses. Uh, you know, I, I don't pretend to be a medical person, but I think we've all become like pseudo medical people here on on air over the course of the past 10 months because we're talking about this every day. So here's what I know. I know that the first two vaccines and so far the only two that are being administered in Canada are, are from Pfizer and Moderna. Both of them require uh, refrigeration to maintain their efficacy efficacy and the Pfizer more so than the Moderna and both of them require two shots in order to be effective they might be somewhat effective but not as fully as they could be with one shot and the interesting thing is Canada and some other countries or Ontario I should say and some other um, environments we can call them countries, are saying, well, you know, let's just blow everything we have out and we'll hope that we get enough uh, additional doses to give the second dose on time. But one, something is better than nothing. I don't know if that's true, but we've got somebody who can tell us and uh, talk about some other aspects of the disease as well. In Dr. Suman Chakrabarty has joined us before, infectious diseases specialist, Mississauga Trillium Health uh, Partners, and uh, site lead in internal medicine clerkship. Good afternoon, Dr. Chakrabarty
3: afternoon happy new year
0: happy new year to you too good to talk to you in 2021 i hope we don't have to talk too many more times by that i mean it's fun to talk to you but i want this over
3: me too i totally hear you (laughs)
0: <laughs> okay so uh, you heard my my little run- up to introducing you and uh, one of the things that i'm looking at is a story out of um, out of the uk actually where what they're doing is they're they're uh, mixing and matching vaccines so oh maybe you got the pfizer first dose but your second dose will be the moderna or vice versa and uh, now they've got a third one over there astrazeneca which isn't even the same type of vaccine uh, and then you've got the whole issue of well it's 21 days between one vaccine Vaccine and the second dose and 28 days for the other vaccine between doses, but we're not going to worry about that. This this changes the rules of everything, doesn't it? It does, and
3: I will say that uh, with a lot of these things that we're seeing variations around the world, there is a nugget of truth in some of it, but there's some stuff that I think that they're going a bit too far. So, for the first issue is I think that uh, it is theoretical that you could potentially use the Pfizer and the Moderna together because they're the same mechanism. But that said, again, you're stepping into an area where you don't have a lot of data. And I think that it would be dangerous to do that.
0: It's like kind of taking a Tylenol and saying, gee, my headache didn't go away. Now I'll take a Motrin.
3: Exactly. Well, that can sometimes work. But that said, I see what your point is. It it, it makes sense. You do want to, however, I, I, I get the idea, though, of trying to get as many people one dose of the vaccine as possible. It's better to have a whole bunch of people that are partially protected than, you know, a small proportion of people that have full protection and you still have vulnerable people. But that is with the caveat that you want to get everybody the second dose for each vaccine that requires it. If there's a bit of delay, that's okay. Within reason, a couple of weeks, fine. But, you know, going to a couple of months, that's starting to now go into an area we don't know a lot about. I think we have to be careful with that. I wouldn't want that in Canada.
0: So in a perfect world, if you get a dose of Pfizer vaccine, 28 days later, you should be getting a dose of Pfizer vaccine. And Moderna, the same caveats with 21 days being the separation. But that's a perfect world and we're not living in one.
3: That's exactly right. And in those situations, we do know that if vaccine doses are given too close together, that can certainly affect, make make it uh, less effective. But we have seen in other vaccines, for example, hepatitis A, you can sometimes give the second vaccine farther apart and you'll still get that protection. So I think that a couple of weeks is fine, especially given the logistics of a huge vaccination campaign like this. But you don't want to be going much further than that because, again, we don't have any data for it.
0: Can I ask you a little bit about something that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau said this morning? He said that uh, we'd have certainly uh, a million plus doses by the end of January, which really uh, considering we're dealing with double dose vaccines would uh, fully vaccinate half a million people, but if you're pushing them out in uh, one dose and we'll worry about the next dose when the time comes, at least it's a million people. We have 38 million people in this country and uh, the second aspect of what the Prime Minister is saying, but don't worry everybody in Canada will have been vaccinated if they if they wish to be no later than the end of September. That's a long time from now.
3: It is a long time, but we have to also remember that one of the big things, of course, um, in, uh, reducing morbidity and mortality is uh, our priority. The big thing here right now, the biggest stress that we're having in Canada and across the world is on local health care systems. So I think what's going to first happen with the vaccine is if you can get the people who are at highest risk of being hospitalized and cover them... What you do is at least you take that stress off and you have some breathing room. Absolutely, our end goal is to get as many, if not every, Canadian vaccinated. But our immediate pro- uh, priority right now is uh, really taking stress off the hospital system. And hopefully, by you know, we're going to start to see the stress coming off you know, end of January, sometime in February slash March. Wouldn't that be
0: nice? Because uh, you may have missed this because I know you're a busy man, but um, just new in the last half hour is uh, the Premier and General Hillier talking and saying the priority is 10,000 minimum shots per day until we're out of vaccine. We'll use one and we'll use two when we get a chance, but we want as many vaccinated as possible. And the big one is the priority is get into the long-term care facilities for staff and residents alike. I, I uh, would assume that that is a priority that you would set too.
3: Absolutely. It's the, the phase one of the uh, recommendations. And again, yes, absolutely. Long-term care, uh, people who live there are at high risk for getting really sick and getting hospitalized, but also the infection often is brought in inadvertently by the people who work there. So that is a very, very high priority uh, group to, to cover.
0: Okay, let's uh, jump uh, to another aspect of COVID. One of the things that's come up, people have been thinking, if you're outdoors, you're just fine. You're not going to get it. You're not going to spread it. Everything's cool. No masks, nothing. And now we're hearing that in colder weather... The spread outdoors is a higher likelihood than what we were experiencing last summer, where let's face it, a lot of people were playing games and running around with their kids in the park. And really, nobody much did get it when you take a look at the numbers we've got today. And it turns out that the hotter weather doesn't support the aerosol remnants of the vaccine staying up there for you to breathe, where in winter they can survive.
3: Yeah, I read this, and I'll be honest with you that I respectfully disagree. I think I'm I I not telling uh, saying that you know you want to be in a crowd of a thousand people for sure. If you're cold or hot, uh, if you're really close together, that can certainly uh, have a risk of uh, transmission. But when you're outdoors, yeah, there's a theoretical possibility of what happens with the aerosols. But for the most part, the risk is sub substantially reduced. And that's why we say that, you know, um, I mean, we're on lockdown now, but if you are going to do activities, doing things outside is safe. Just you try not to crowd together for prolonged periods of time, I wouldn't worry about uh, the change in weather in that regard.
0: I don't do that. I just marvel at the people driving in their cars alone with a mask on. But never mind. Uh, Let me ask you one more question, and I'll let you go. Uh, There are people, and and it's very particular, actually, to racialized groups for some reason, uh, but uh, others as well, who are hesitant about the vaccine altogether. You're a clinician. You're a person who deals in vaccines and in infectious diseases, and you know as much as anybody could possibly know about COVID-19. Would you be hesitant?
3: You you know, uh, uh, I, myself, when I was hearing about the vaccines coming out, of course, there's a little bit of trepidation. People are, this is new, you have questions, uh, this is something that's going to be rolled out to millions of people. I think we have to remember that uh, people who are hesitant or a little bit, uh, you know, uh, questioning, if they're not anti-vaccine they just want to know a bit more and in my experience I've come across a lot of my coworkers, friends and family in this boat and it's a matter of having a conversation explaining what's going on explaining the benefit and for the most part people have been getting it I've already gotten mine I feel great and I would recommend that every single Canadian get it
0: soon as I can I got to tell you thanks so much for taking the time out of your busy day we appreciate it
3: absolutely you got to take care
0: all right, that's Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, infectious disease specialist at Mississauga Trillium Health Partners, uh, and he is uh, site lead internal medicine clerkship now. We're awaiting contact from Stephen Del Duca. I can tell you a little bit about uh, where he's going to go because I think these things, these subjects that we're covering these days uh, and really covering and covering and covering and we make no apology for that. It's This is where you come to find out uh, what's new today and what uh, Mr. Del Duca wants to talk about is the fact that vaccine rollout in the province of Ontario has been uh, pretty slow to date. I remember the other day the big news well today is only Tuesday so so yesterday we were talking about, my, you know, the 4,000 shots over the course of the weekend wasn't really a hell of a lot, and it wasn't. But uh, if you were with us last hour, then you heard uh, the uh, nuts and bolts of the news conference that was held at Queen's Park by uh, Premier Ford. And certainly General Hillier was there. And I see Stephen Del Duca calling in now. And uh, General Hillier um, was talking about the fact that they will be uh, minimum vaccinating about 10,000 people a day. And at 10,000 people a day, they should be out of vaccine by about the 21st of January. Stephen Del Duca, are you with me?
4: I am, Peter. Happy New Year.
0: Happy New Year to you, too. Good to hear your voice. Leader of the Ontario Liberal Party is Stephen Del Duca. And I was just kind of, we call it tap dancing in the business, uh, (laughs) waiting for your call, talking about what we were going to talk about, and now we can talk about it. So uh, you had some concerns. Maybe they've been addressed, if you, like me, listen to the Premier and the uh, General talking about the rollout. They're saying that everything we've got in the fridge, literally and figuratively, will be gone by the 21st.
4: Yeah. So, look, I've heard what they've said, but we also know that now for many, many weeks, we've been hearing from Doug Ford about the plan to roll out vaccines. We know that he expressed impatience with the federal government last month. Um, But we also know that talk is cheap and that we have moved well beyond hearing nothing but platitudes from political leaders of all stripes. What we need is those vaccines to be in people's arms, in people's bodies, helping us get through the rest of the second wave. And so notwithstanding what, uh, what Doug Ford said today and has said I am gravely concerned. I am still nervous. The numbers are going in the wrong direction. We have far too many tragic deaths in nursing homes, and people in this province remain scared. And I think, sadly, pessimistic about for ability to deal with the second wave.
0: Well, I'll tell you what I'm pessimistic about. I'm pessimistic about the second wave altogether wherever you go. We did a a feature uh, 45 minutes ago on Quebec, which may not be our concern on a direct basis, but it's our immediate neighbor. On a per capita basis, they're about 50% uh, worse off than we are. Uh, They've got fewer vaccines in the arms of people, and they're talking about going into uh, real tough measures like shutting down construction and manufacturing and going into Curfew, and yeah. the word is this Friday.
4: Yeah, no, I read those media reports as well, and I think that it you know this signals that there are many governments across uh, this country, and including here in Ontario, who have sadly lost control of the second wave. And so, I've heard the platitudes, I've heard the right messages coming from Doug Ford. This is not the first time we've heard him say the right things, but you got to back up the right tone and uh, all of those words with meaningful action. So. Yeah, look, I'm eager. I'm impatient to see the vaccinations get rolled out. I'm still completely shocked that they decided to put a pause on the vaccination rollout over the holidays. I know I've heard the excuses. I've heard what they've said. Uh, I just I can't believe that 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 took place. So, you know, moving forward, we can't afford to miss the mark anymore. I hope that they will transparently report the progress. I hope that we will not have to be confused about the progress that we're making on this front, because right now the situation is dire and it's moving in the wrong direction
0: okay well let's let's just leave that there draw a line and let me ask you a question from a different direction and that direction would be uh general hillier i don't know what his politics are i don't think it really matters He get paid money provincial money our tax money to manage a program he has said that as of now we are injecting 10,000 plus per day and at that rate by the 21st so uh, 17 16 days from now uh, 10,000 a day is 160,000 that's about what we got in the fridge and what we expect so if he's true to his word and I take General Hillier to be just that um, then you know we we can have another conversation um, I guess the 22nd about whether or not you're satisfied and at that point you're going to say we need more vaccine.
4: Yeah, look, I think we need a steady flow of vaccines coming into this province. I understand that multiple levels of government are working on that. But again, and this is not meant to be disrespectful to General General Hillier at all. I've said this throughout the pandemic. It's important to have key people, whether it's General Hillier or it's Dr. David Williams or others in positions of leadership. But you and I, Peter, we both know one thing. The buck stops with Doug Ford. He is the premier of Ontario. He can't take a holiday from this responsibility. He shouldn't be. And so, yes, I, I am I am encouraged to hear that there seems to be a plan to do better, but we actually need more than a plan. We need to actually do better. So we'll see over the rest of this week and into next week and beyond, are we actually on pace to meet what has been said uh, today by, uh, by Doug Ford and by others? And if we're not, I'm going to continue to call him to account for it. And if we are, then I'll be one of the people jumping up and down, looking for more vaccines to come into this province so we can get people injected and restore some semblance of normalcy in the coming months, which is what everybody in Ontario wants to see.
0: Hey, Stephen, look, I'm, I'm with you. And if we do get to the third week of the month and the vaccines are gone, uh, you're going to be the first one to hear from me. And I'm going to say, call up your pal Trudeau. He's not my pal. And, and tell him to find a way to get more vaccines into Canada, because he made a statement today to the effect that every Canadian who wants a vaccination will have one by the end of September. Not good enough. Do you agree?
4: Uh, Look, I think there's an urgency here that we all feel, uh, regardless of partisan stripe, regardless of a walk of life we are in, we we want the vaccines rolled out. We want to make sure that our province is able to navigate the rest of the second wave and uh, get back to uh, what what we do best as a province. And beyond the vaccines, Peter, we also have some very serious challenges continuing in nursing homes across this province, far too many tragic deaths. Millions of parents of school-aged kids who are still concerned about kids, whether they're virtual learning this week, back in class next week. And, of course, you know this as well as I do, thousands and thousands of small business owners who are just, like, literally facing, um, you know, horrible circumstances in terms of keeping their doors open. So we have a lot of challenges. Uh, the vaccine is an essential and um, important part of getting this all right. But we need we need Premier Ford to step up and continue to move on all of these fronts. And i got to tell you, the last few weeks in particular, I think he's really dropped the ball.
0: Well, I am nobody's apologist, and uh, I think the sooner we address all of these things, the better off we are all going to be, and we all have uh, an awful long way to go to get to that point where we're happy with ourselves and with what's going on in Ontario, and and indeed in Canada and the world. So let me focus on something that you raised, which is the long-term care uh, issue. Now, there are people who are saying, look, we, in fact, the the commission that was appointed to study long-term care uh, is supposed to report by April 30th, asked for an extension have indeed issued two interim reports which are not rosy uh but they're supposed to report by april 30th and uh marilee fullerton who is the minister of long-term care as you well know says no you're reporting by uh, april 30th not by december 31st we need this now agree or disagree
4: i think the scariest part of the back and forth between the commission and the minister is that the commission has been stonewalled and been blocked by this minister and this premier in terms of the documentation and the information and evidence that they've been seeking to provide a comprehensive roadmap for going forward, so that to me is the scariest thing. I don't understand what what possibly the minister or the premier could have to hide at this uh, at this uh, at this juncture. But beyond the commission's work, let me just say, it's we all know long term care has been a long standing challenge, but it's now been ten months, and the Canadian Armed Forces it's now been
0: twenty years, Stephen.
4: But hang on, in this pandemic, it's been ten months. And the Canadian Armed Forces produced their report back in May. And so we see in other provinces, while not perfect, they have moved forward, for example, in Quebec, with hiring up more staff. I believe they did it in British Columbia as well. Here in Ontario, it's like Doug Ford is waiting for the Commission's report to actually take the meaningful action that's required. So this is not to absolve past governments, including past Liberal governments. This is to say, what the hell is Doug Ford waiting for? In places like Tendercare and in Scarborough, we see dozens of people still dying – 10 months into this pandemic, the money is not being invested the way it needs to be invested. They have not hired up the staff that they need to hire up. It's shocking to me. Again, I don't know what he's waiting for. It's crazy.
0: Would a liberal government under you take uh, long term care out of the private sector?
4: You know, I think that there are, I think every option needs to be on the table, Peter. I think it's far more important for all of us to figure out. How people like my parents, my mom and dad who are aging, uh, can have the kind of safety and good health and economic sufficiency to be able to stay in their own homes as long as possible if they ultimately have to go into a nursing home. Anybody in this province, the focus needs to be with the dollars we have collectively to invest in long term care. The focus has to be on care for the patients or the residents and their families. It can't be on, uh, you know, on. Uh, on dividends for stockholders or for shareholders i mean we, we really have to reorder how we prioritize this kind of work so is that a every yes option should be on the table i think every option should be on the table i don't think it's as easy as to simply say right now we are eliminating across the board all forms of private long-term care because of contractual obligations that, that you know still exist within the system but i think there needs to be a much bigger conversation about how we no longer accept second best for our parents and grandparents it's not a partisan issue Uh, liberals have failed in the past so have conservatives so have people at all levels of government we have to figure out how we fix this going forward and i'm committed to doing just that
0: Stephen del duca i wish you nothing but success in 2021 thank you
4: peter you as well take care
0: all right you too Stephen del duca is the leader of the ontario liberal party some thoughts on uh, how we're dealing with long-term care and virus distribution virus distribution we don't want any virus distribution vaccine distribution and undoubtedly we'll be hearing from him throughout the year Global News Radio, and I'm Peter Sherman, in for Jeff MacArthur. I've been looking forward to talking to Bruce Heyman, former U.S. Ambassador, and uh, the reason is, I am sure, uh, Ambassador Heyman, you're going to have something to say about what's going on in Georgia today. This is pivotal to American politics right now.
5: Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's always good to be back in Canada, albeit virtually, and yeah, it's it's a big day in another string of big days in American politics says this day will determine much of what Joe Biden will be able to get done as president uh, through the Senate and whether or not the Democrats control the Senate or not. And it's a pivotal day for, I think, some of his larger uh, far reaching initiatives this clearly would make it easier to get passed.
0: Well, let's make sure that our Canadian audience, which of course it is for the most part, uh, understands what we're talking about. There are two runoff elections, both senatorial for senator uh, in Georgia, and if if both were to go Democrat, then Biden basically has a slim edge, but an edge nonetheless, and he can do an awful lot more about getting legislation through and passed, whereas if uh, even one of these goes the other way towards the Republican side, much less too, then he's kind of hamstrung with uh, trying to negotiate his way through passing legislation. And uh, if, if not doing that, having to sign a lot of executive orders the way Trump has done. And that's not a, a, a very positive way to run a country. I, and I'm not casting aspersions on America. It's just the way the system works.
5: So I think you've decided, described it exactly correct. In this particular case, It actually would be a, you know, there are 100 senators, two for every state. And if the Democrats win both tonight, that it would be exactly a 50-50 tie. And in that event, the vice president breaks the tie, which would be Vice President Kamala Harris. And so she would break the tie. And thus, the Democrats would have control of the leadership of the Senate. And so, but albeit it's an incredibly slim margin. What's important about this is that, you know, the leader of each of these houses of Congress makes the determination of what bills are presented for a vote. And in the Senate, we have seen Mitch McConnell hold back lots of legislation that was passed in the House, holding it back in the Senate, and not even bringing it up for a vote. And so the $2,000 stimulus check, not up for a vote, reorienting our, um, uh, our election process, not up for a vote. All of these various things that he just decides I'm not going to bring up for a vote would happen in a Biden administration. So it makes it much more difficult.
0: As you Ambassador Heyman, uh, in a situation where you get two Democrats elected tonight and you've got a, a, a a 50-50 split, which is amazing, but possible, and and it's very possible today. And then you've got Kamala Harris as vice president casting deciding votes. Who actually is the leader, the majority leader in the Senate?
5: I think that, you know, what happens is you take that to a vote as well. Kamala Harris, the vice president, would be the deciding vote for the Democrats, and the Democrats, in where it stands today would most likely be Senator Schumer from New York would be leading the Senate instead of Senator McConnell from Kentucky. And so there would be a switch in party control, and so that's what would happen. What also happens is in each of the committees that the Senate has, those would then be staffed at the leadership level with Democrats instead of Republicans. So each of those committees can then move legislation, vote on judges, bring up uh, nominees, ambassadors, and and the cabinet and others. So things could move a lot faster and be much more effective for the Biden administration.
0: It'll be interesting to watch the count tonight, and uh, I know you'll be there. I think I will be there as well and find out what happens tomorrow because uh, after the last four years, and I cast no aspersions nor praise in any direction, after the last four years, there's an awful lot that uh, needs to be addressed over the course of the next four.
5: Yeah, I don't think it's going to go as long as it did during the presidential race because I think that the process will be sped up tonight. So I think maybe in the early hours of Wednesday morning, uh, we'll, we'll likely know who the winners are for both of these races. And so we'll know by sometime by tomorrow morning um, who is won and whether or not it's going to be a Democrat-controlled Senate or not. And then we dip right into the electoral college uh, you know affirmation that is going to take place where a lot of senators, uh, and congressmen in the Republican side are going to question the vote for Joe Biden. They're, that's not going to succeed, but it will be a real show for a day. And then, of course, Joe Biden will be sworn in at high noon on january the 20th
0: yes and that's before we get to tomorrow and whatever's going to happen in the streets of washington look you know you it's it's not a country that uh, ever lies still any more than ours is and uh, I, I would like to think over the course of the next four years we will resume uh, and continue to be each other's first best neighbors amen absolutely thanks so much for taking your time today sir
5: pleasure be healthy everyone it's a tough time out there and just listen to those health authorities it's uh It's really important that we get to that vaccine, and the only way to do it is to protect ourselves.
0: Happy New Year, Ambassador Heyman. All right, that's Ambassador Bruce Heyman, former U.S. Ambassador to Canada, talking to us from his home in the United States, and he'll be watching the Senate races as we lie tonight. Thank you to Rob Trevisan for handling the controls today. Thank you to Mary Feely for uh, program content. She's the content producer. And stay tuned, as always, at 305. For John Oakley, the one and only, I'm Peter Sherman.